Flip the Switch, your podcast for the latest on power, people and the planet. Welcome to Flip the Switch. Uh, I'm your host, Jaydeep Mukherjee, Asia Executive Director for Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet, uh, in short, GAP. Flip the Switch is a podcast series where we exchange opportunities and ideas impacting our progress in achieving access to clean energy and reliable energy for all. We have with us today Ashwin Dayal, Interim CEO, GAP, and Joseph Nanga, Africa Executive Director, GAP. A very warm welcome to you both. At the just concluded COP26, we saw governments from more than 200 nations come together and present a common pathway to reduce emissions and accelerate climate initiatives. To make this commitment a reality, it is important that all key stakeholders rally behind and play their part in this transition. As economies accelerate, power needs among developing countries will significantly rise and this demand needs to be fulfilled through a low carbon pathway. Over the last few months, the Rockefeller Foundation in partnership with the IKEA Foundation and the Bezos Earth Fund have formed a unique coalition the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet. Launched at COP26, the Alliance aims to aid and catalyze energy access, economic development and energy transition across the developing world. The Alliance will extend clean, productive use energy to a billion underserved people, creating 150 million green jobs and averting over 4 billion tons of emissions. I would like to invite you, Ashwin, here to throw light on this ambitious endeavor for the Alliance. And how did it go at COP26? How was the launch received? And uh, we had this uh, announcement around this transformational transformational country partnerships. Uh, I would like to hear uh, your views and responses uh, that you received at the COP26 on this announcement. Over to you, Ashwin. Thanks, Jadeep, and great to be with you. Um, yeah, look, COP26, is, is, as we know, just concluded, and, and I think we're still trying to process, you know, was it a partial win or a partial loss? Uh, you know, have we really made significant progress as a global community on, on hitting the 1.5 or maintaining the 1.5 target as a realistic, achievable thing. Um, you know, the, the reality is that the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet was, was really a response to uh, the need to bring the development aspirations and the low carbon needs of the planet uh, together in one initiative. You know, efforts to protect the planet so far have largely excluded the energy needs and economic aspirations of billions of people in the developing world, right? I mean, we keep telling people you need to cut emissions. Actually, the reality is that, you know, billions of people need to consume more, not less energy. And the question is, how are you going to do that without destroying the planet, without, you know, completely uh, losing grip of the 1.5 target? Uh, and this is the opportunity that we brought to COP was there is a chance for the first time in history, frankly, 
to leverage all of the gains that we've seen in technology, um, to dramatically expand access to clean energy, to renewable energy that can transform the lives and livelihoods of billions of people while also making a tangible impact on protecting the planet from the worst impacts of climate change. You know, the developing world today, excluding China, accounts for about 25% of global emissions. By 2050, in a business as usual scenario, we predict that will be about 75%. So the low energy consumers of today are going to be the high energy consumers of tomorrow. So how do we create a value proposition that brings clean energy to people much more urgently um, while also keeping the planet on track for uh, addressing climate change? So, you know, this is what we launched at COP26, this Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet, which has been, you know, years in the making, actually, if you think about it. Uh, but certainly over the last nine months, you know, an intensive process of working with a set of partners. You mentioned our core philanthropic partners, IKEA Foundation, um, Rockefeller Foundation, of course, and um, the Bezos Earth Fund, who came together to provide an initial base of about a billion and a half dollars of grant capital, which is sort of precious investment that we need uh, to be able to leverage other types of capital, other types of investments, pointing towards projects that can serve uh, low-income, underserved, under-electrified or unelectrified communities in Asia, Africa, Latin America. Um, and these are projects that need a lot of support. They need a lot of technical support. They need a lot of political support. And they need a lot of investment support. So we brought a package of at least $10 billion. Um, in addition to the philanthropic capital, we have a, you know almost a dozen multilateral and DFI development finance institutions coming together who are inspired by what the Alliance is trying to do um, to bring something tangible to COP. And, and we launched it there. And so the response has been incredible, frankly, because, you know, a lot of the conversation at COP26, and, and I was there, Joseph was there as well, was about the world not delivering um, tangible packages of finance to developing nations. You know, lots of lectures on how they need to reduce emissions, no capital, no investment to actually make that happen. And here we have an alliance that is trying to break through that bottleneck. Um, so we had an incredible response from, uh, you know, dozens of developing nations who were there, um, LDCs, least developed countries, um, and some of the middle income countries who also need help with bigger challenges like, you know, transitioning fossil fuel and coal, for example. Um, we launched, uh, as you rightly described, the, the call for transformational country partnerships. And, and we talk about the word partnership rather than just projects, uh, because we really feel that that's the starting point. So it's an invitation to, you know, 80 plus countries who, who we see as energy poor, uh, but nonetheless important in terms of the energy transition question, uh, offering a package of support from sort of proposal development, project development, technical work, uh, work on regulatory reforms, you know, all of the sort of boring but essential things that have to happen to get a market moving, but also then linking that to actual financing. So providing different types of capital that can help de-risk uh, these complicated, not often, not always fully commercial projects, but to bring them to market with the assistance of concessional capital. So we've just issued the launch. We're gathering expressions of interest uh, we'll launch the process, uh, start receiving applications from December 1st. Um, and we expect, you know, to choose um, a partner with at least 20 countries um, in, in, in through the course of the next 12 months uh, to help them develop concrete, large transformational projects 
that they can then take forward over the coming years. So it's a, you know it's an exciting start. We have a lot of work to do still. Uh, so we're we're just getting going in that sense. Uh, but it was really encouraging to see the response. Yeah, thank thank you, Ashwin, for that. I mean, this is uh, certainly a big commitment for us, and it'll be interesting to see. Uh, the impact unfolding in the regions that the alliance will uh, work in, the countries and all the partners. Uh, now, uh, turning to Africa, Joseph, you were at uh, COP right in the thick of action, uh, meeting all the African delegations and heads of state. Uh, how how do you feel, and how do you see the alliance's journey unfolding? in Africa. Thank you, Jaydeep, and it's nice to be here as well. Um, COP was an interesting uh, series of meetings, and as Ashwin has summarized, a lot of um, big announcements and promises and um, the real resources. I think the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet really brought um, concrete resources to the table. And it was very well received by the Africa delegations. Look, in Africa, we have over 500 million Africans who don't have access to electricity. Um, that's well over 50% of Africans. And if you go to the rural areas, that's well over 70% of Africans who don't have um, access to electricity. There's also key concern around um, climate mitigation. Africa will be largely impacted by climate change, even when Africa has not played a huge role in um, causing the pollution that is leading to climate change. And so there's a lot of concern and there's also um, a concern on the climate change and there's also the need for electrification. What is exciting coming out of COP and particularly with the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet in mind is the opportunity to leverage uh, knowledge and experiences some of it emerging from um, the subcontinent of Asia that we can apply towards the continent to address this uh, climate and energy access um, challenge. Um, do you see it happening that way in Asia, um, Jaitip? Yeah. Yes, uh, thanks, Joseph, uh, for your impressions. Yeah, the you know, speaking of Asia, uh, you know, it's, it's an... Interesting situation, uh, and in in you know where it is different from Africa is that uh, many of the countries have progressed a great deal in terms of access, uh, but still the larger part of the energy mix is uh, you know dependent on fossil fuels, coal, diesel. Uh, for instance. Uh, in a take two of the world's largest uh, island nation countries, uh, Indonesia and Philippines, while they have high levels of access, the countries are still heavily reliant on coal and diesel. There is a large population uh, in remote geographies there, which still has uh, unelectrified. And, and this is where uh, GIA provides, uh, you know, there is a great play for GIA to not only accelerate uh, the re replacement or transition from the conventional energy sources, but particularly for the island uh, grids, you know, the renewable DRE renewable solutions can be a great way for a quick transition uh, in, in these uh, countries. Coming to India, I mean, uh, India boasts of 100% uh, 
household electrification. Rural areas are still continue to struggle with poor quality electricity and enterprises are heavily diesel dependent. Again, here we see opportunity for the airlines to accelerate reliability, transition from diesel dependence. And you know that our DRE programs like the on-grid mini-grid program is already beginning to make a big impact on the ground. And new programs like the CNI rooftop solution poised to be launched is another way that we can accelerate the energy transition. But then uh, the ambition for the Alliance is to also accelerate the larger grid scale transition from the, you know, the fossil fuel towards a cleaner pathway because, you know, we have to address the growth uh, into a green pathway and the existing carbon footprint to make it cleaner. So uh, we have to adapt this uh, twin pronged uh, approach. Uh, in Asia, both the DRE-led and the large grid-based uh, transition. You know, we met uh, when I was at COP, we met uh, with the Indonesian delegation actually a couple of times. Um, and so since you mentioned Indonesia, there's, it, it's, it's really interesting what they are eager to do. You know, they've got, uh, as you said, there's something like 60, 62% of their electricity is generated uh, via coal. So that's an important part of their economy. Um, but they recognize that they have to go through a transition um, and that they need to bring that percentage down. Uh, but they need to do it without destroying jobs, without undermining the economy. And they need to do it with a, a commensurate increase in installed capacity of renewables um, coming in alongside that. Uh, so we had several conversations with them about how the Global Energy Alliance for, for People and Planet could partner with the government of Indonesia, with the Asian Development Bank and others uh, to try some innovations in this area, you know, can you can you actually um, accelerate uh, the decommissioning of existing coal assets? Um, you know, so let's say you have a coal-fired power plant that has got a thirty or forty-year uh, life cycle remaining. You know, there are some really interesting um, sort of models being developed to say, okay, there's a way to bring that down to 10 or 15 or 20 years. So at least half the life of that coal plant. So you're not just saying, you know, stop it tomorrow because that would be economically unviable. But can you create some financing incentives to essentially accelerate the closure of a plant that would otherwise potentially run for 40 years? And you can then very, um, you know, very uh, specifically quantify what impact that will have on, on carbon. Now, all of that takes... It's going to take political support. It's going to take uh, financial financing support because you know you are essentially trying to discount a future cash flow um, of a privately owned or publicly owned coal-fired power plant, and create an incentive to the owners to say, "Look, shut this down twenty years earlier." And to do that um, is going to take some innovative financing structuring, it's going to take some flexible capital and it's going to take a lot of political will. But it seems like to me like the message from the Indonesians was, you know, they're really, really interested in, in exploring this if they can get the right kinds of support for them to do that. Um, you know, a point will come where coal becomes economically obsolete and we're probably not that far away from that point. So, you know, I, I'm less worried about uh, you know, five years from now, will somebody be investing in a new coal power plant? Probably not. But we have massive amounts of installed and in some cases quite a young fleet 
of coal-fired power plants around the world, and, and we need something uh, innovative to to try and deal with that challenge. So it's really interesting to see how the Indonesians uh, showed up at COP um, and and how committed they they seem to be to tackle what is a pretty politically difficult um, issue. Because you know when we talk about accelerating the closure of, of something like a coal plant, five hundred megawatt coal plant, you know there's the whole question of the just transition. Do you bring uh, risks to jobs uh, associated with that um, with that power plant. Uh, did, are you sure you can maintain the level of, of energy supply to industry and businesses? So I, I really congratulate the sort of stance that they've taken on this, and and we're looking forward to partnering with them to to, to see what we can do together. Interesting, yes, you mentioned the energy yes, transition please. agenda. Um, sure, Joseph, look, go ahead. Thank, thank you. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the energy transition agenda. Looking at the continent and what's emerging there uh, in Africa, um, uh, Nigeria presents another uh, energy transition example where there is a significant amount of um, household, small business, industrial installed diesel generators um, to back up the unreliable or even in some instances unavailable um, electricity grid. And what we're seeing from that perspective really is um, the government of, U of Nigeria has committed to net zero by um, 2060. And that means that there's a lot of work that needs to be done towards um, decommissioning, if I may call it that, these household level, industrial and small business generators. And the conversation is very similar towards um, ensuring that the transition is a just transition so people have an alternative. If you're not providing uh, diesel generators, how are these local enterprises going to run? How are hospitals and schools going to run? And can they run on clean energy that's also affordable, that secures jobs and protects the environment? We are seeing a lot of um, interest from the government of Nigeria to work with the Global Energy Alliance uh, for People and Planet to model how this would look to um, put together the business plan for how this could be funded, and then to work um, alongside the government towards policies, regulations that drive this um, very ambitious uh, goal. Um, over to you, uh, JD. Yeah, uh, thank you, Joseph. Uh, thank you, Ashwin. This whole subject of uh, just transition is such an important piece, and I think uh, this is where the uh, the philanthropies, uh, you know, through the alliance that have come together can play possibly a big role in uh, catalyzing and designing and enabling a just transition because uh, just from the lens that the philanthropies uh, have, have towards the communities that get impacted by this. Uh, so I think uh, it's, it's going to be a very important uh, angle in this whole transition uh, piece where the Alliance can have a big role to play. Uh, but Ashwin, given this uh, context, uh, you know, the variety of nations, uh, countries and at various stages and political positions, uh, you know, where you have Indonesia, which has clearly got a very granular game plan laid out and is out there uh, seeking support and participation and uh, you have, uh, you know, uh, countries in Africa, again, a wide spectrum from Malawi to Nigeria, <laughs> Joseph, you have a very wide spectrum and uh, 
to you know work with and uh, you know get them on the right path uh, what do you think uh, in this context ashwin the challenges that we should anticipate and your thoughts on the way forward no you absolutely you know you're right look the the alliance is is taking a very broad approach right um and i think therein lies a challenge we're not trying to come up with a one size fits all we're not saying it's just fossil fuel decommissioning or it's just distributed renewable electrification or it's just grid based it's like it has to be a combination of these things and it has to be driven by the demand of an individual country you know what what the alliance is doing is that it will design it will finance and it will help execute renewable energy programs across a spectrum of very different countries malawi you know which joseph knows very well has something like you know 11 12 13 percent electrification so you know the starting point for them is is much more around how do we actually expand access um uh, how do we unleash the full potential of distributed renewable energy technologies in a country that is going to struggle to electrify the nation using traditional grid infrastructure and grid extension um i had a fascinating uh, interaction with the delegation of the democratic republic of congo in um when i was at cop 26 and you know met with the president and and his delegation talking about how do you electrify large cities so you know we talk about dre and mini grids and we tend to think about very small scale 30 40 kilowatt systems electrifying a small village here there are towns that have 150000 people in them that are completely off the grid that are essentially um energized through a you know through a sort of a patchwork of small and mid-sized generators and kerosene and a lot of wood and this is a country that is one of the major basins uh for carbon with the with the with the forests there um so you know we we here we talk about metro grids uh which are larger scale you know 5 6 7 up to 10 megawatt systems uh that are renewable energy based solar uh, in the large part but they could be other technologies so the challenge is really managing that spread that scope uh the idea that you know we're not just trying to come up with a single solution for a typical country but that every country is going to need uh, a bespoke offering the thing that we're trying to do to kind of bring to address that challenge is to work with each country sort of secure head of state commitment to really embed a country led visioning exercise for what we call a national transformational program or project which is what are the one or two things that you can drive at scale to address the access and carbon challenge that you're facing and through that also create and unleash um significant numbers of good clean and green jobs um so perhaps in a country like DRC it's how do you how do you electrify 25 or 30 of these uh cities of 150,000 people plus over the next 5 years and what would it take to get that done that's the opportunity and the challenge of the alliance right is you've got an amazing range of organizations coming under the umbrella of the alliance saying we want to take these kinds of large scale challenges and get the job done much more quickly than we would otherwise be able to do if we were not coordinating under the alliance so get that head of state commitment identify the the, the national transformational program that you know deliver quickly and flexibly the kind of technical support that you need 
to get the initial policies and regulations uh, uh, in line in place for putting out tenders and bidding documents and things like that, do the project development work, and then very crucially, bring together the capital that's going to be needed because some of these systems are going to need a combination of highly concessional and commercial capital to get this going. So I think, you know, we've raised uh, the profile of the alliance. We've, we've offered a, you know, a pathway to engage with countries. And so honestly, the challenge now is execution, 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 is we have to really be able to follow through. Um, and I'm convinced we will, because I think the DNA of this alliance is around country-led uh, work and, and really, you know, yourselves in Asia and, and Joseph and, and his team in, in Africa, making sure that we partner effectively um, and, and really, you know, move away from sort of business as usual to getting these kinds of projects moving much, much more quickly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be an audacious uh, endeavor. Joseph, you want to add anything or how are you feeling about this execution, execution, execution? Uh, you know, the rubber is about to hit the road now. Indeed, the rubber must hit the road, but it is time and it, there is a sense of urgency with the climate crisis, with the need for um, energy access, so nobody's left behind. So yes, the challenge is enormous, but we have to step up and meet the moment. And as Ashwin mentions, it's really a very um, integrated way of thinking about electrification. Um, providing energy access and climate. I would add that as we think about the policies, the regulations, and then how to finance um, these projects, we are also spending a lot of time looking at jobs and looking at how that power will then be used to drive economic development. So we strongly believe that supporting ideas around demand, whether it's demand at the mini grid level, it's at the municipal grid level, it's at the national level, this power as it's generated and transmitted to the consumers should be used to drive economic development, which will then ensure that it's a sustainable sector while also improving people's lives. So actually, the climate crisis also presents an opportunity for us to address that crisis in a way that also leaves people in a much better position than they were before. So yes, um, execute, execute, execute. We feel the pressure, but we also feel the excitement and the opportunity to really make a difference. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ashwin and Joseph. Uh, we are all very excited to be a part of this unique and ambitious endeavor. Thank you to all the listeners for joining us on the first episode of Flip the Switch. Stay tuned for more exciting updates on power, people, and planet. You can follow us on our social media channels for more. See you again next time. Thank you. Bye now. Flip the Switch, your podcast for the latest on power people and the planet.